Welcome to the Athletic MBA Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Tampering. We're this beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. With Sam Panic. Uh-huh. To be able to bring people together. Reportedly at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executive in the league is not talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Right or wrong? Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward to even talk about it. I can't even mention teams anymore. Actually, what I like to play with Kevin Durant. Trial, you're one with tampering. They're always ahead of the rules. It's not rocket science. I tamper with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Hello and welcome to the Tampering Podcast. I'm Sam Amick, NBA national writer at The Athletic. Here as always, we got Fred Katz, we got Anthony Slater, we got playoff basketball, we got cracking voices. Good morning to you. What's up, boys? Oh, Fred, I'm just... Fred's covering a uh, Fred's covering a Western Conference team from the East Coast. He's got these. I know. Late I don't know nights. how to describe you. How anymore, is life, Fred? Fred? I'm uh, I'm always tired, so it's fine. You fight, you fight through the tiredness, and then you sleep in August. That's how being an NBA reporter works. So I'm good. All right, Slater. Energy dip already happening. Fred's coming with the, I've been up till four in the morning writing Grizzly no. remotely. No, I am coming in with, I am sprightly. I am energized. If you never sleep, then you force yourself to constantly energize, and you forget everything you've done in the last seven minutes. But you know what? You're awake. <laughs> what do you got, Slater? What's your vibe? I'm good. We still have seven of the eight first round playoff series are alive. Only one sweep, and it wasn't an Man, who could that be? Sweep, who would you guess would be the first team to bow out of the NBA playoffs? If I asked you back in October, who would be the first team to bow out of the NBA playoffs? Who would come to mind? Serious question. Who? Just pick a team. Who? Who would you have thought? I would have said the Portland Trailblazers. All right, fair. History would would you know look kindly on that prediction. They would uh, they would love that result also. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know who would love the Sacramento Kings. They would love. Oh, we needed but to get yeah, a Kings yeah. dig in within the first. Fred, two what, minutes. You unbelievable. Know, you're kind of East Coast and West Coast now. Well, who who would you think at season's beginning? As we're about I, to talk about the Brooklyn Nets. I think, Nets, I, think uh, I think I was pushing the Hornets for the eighth seed. Okay. Preseason in the East, so so I think probably probably the Hornets. They you know I figured they they'd get there and be a fun team, and then be young and inexperienced, and and you know get killed by a number one seed in the first round, like maybe Brooklyn. Or yeah, something. like the Nets, right? The, the powerhouse. Right. So what you you both are underscoring right is that first round bowouts are typically reserved for teams that can say, "Good job, good effort," and we were happy to be here, and we were not favored. Uh, but man, these Nets—they—they they come in obviously not favored because of their ridiculous regular season roller coaster and everything that came into it. Um, but I'm pretty stunned, and we're gonna get a- around to all the series today. Uh, Fred is on Grizzlies Timberwolves, which has been a lot of fun and been enjoying Fred's coverage. A little change of pace for him. Slater obviously is on Warriors Nuggets, that got somewhat surprisingly extended. But we start today with Nets Celtics. Um, this series, I mean, for me, is like the most entertaining sweep, I, you know, in recent memory, for sure, uh, because sweeps are typically boring. But to watch 
you know, these two squads, both wildly talented, both mostly healthy. Robert Williams in the beginning of the series wasn't available. He was there at the end. Um, but pretty stunned for me to see, you know, this catch the characters on the Brooklyn side and, and obviously Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, chief among them, go down like this. I mean, Kevin ends up having a good game four, did figure a few things out offensively after a, a brutal first three games in this series. Um, you know, Kyrie sputters at the end. They, they had plenty of offense that couldn't stop anybody, and, and Boston survives after Tatum fouled out late. But, uh, guys, I mean, not only do the Celtics look, you know, very, very capable of winning the entire thing, you know, they just bounced a couple of Hall of Famers who, who had championship aspirations in mind. I was I was convinced earlier in the series that the Tatum game winner in game one, which, you know, split second, let's just say either he misses it or just doesn't get it off in time. I was convinced like that was the swing game. Whoever won that was going to win the series. And the fact that Boston did, they should be able to survive in six or seven. I'm no longer convinced that that swung the series. Like if Brooklyn <laughs> wins that game, I think Boston's still winning in five or six. Just they were just clearly the better team. And to me, you know, I'm sure we will get into like the net side of this and, and the aftermath, the, the obituary essentially of their odd season. But generally, I think takeaway number one is like, Boston was just dominant and looks dominant and to me looks like the East favorite at this point. Just the way they just you know bottled them up defensively and and still look dangerous offensively. And Jason Tatum looked like a legit top five, top ten player in the league. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a vote this year, but he would have been on my first team all NBA. Like I think I think Jason Tatum is you know how we always say there are more than five top five players? I, I think Jason Tatum is That's one of those. That's not how first team all NBA works, Fred. <laughs> I think Jason Tatum is is one he's in that conversation. I agree with you. He's become such an unbelievable player and especially over these last three and a half months when the Celtics have totally ratcheted up. It's it's unbelievable. I you know, I know that the Nets from a uh you know overall big picture perspective are the bigger story, but just in terms of the basketball. The Celtics were insane in this series. And by the way, Sam, part of the reason why it was such an entertaining sweep was that all the games were actually close. And the way that, I mean, I think it was a total of 18-point differential between the two teams in a four-game sweep, which is really damn close for a sweep. And to see the way the Celtics' defense would ratchet up uh, really throughout the series, but especially in those final five minutes of fourth quarters, it's just insane and the big difference was just you see like Jason Tatum hit an open pull up and you just think like you see uh, you see Jalen Brown get to the rim with a little more ease. And you just think like those are not the types of looks that Brooklyn is able to get. And those are the types of looks you're able to get against Boston's defense. I just think that is the most insane. That's I think this is one of the best defenses for any NBA team in years. I think we have to go back a long way to find a better defense. It, they're outrageous defensively from personnel perspective, from a scheme perspective, from buying perspective. It's just crazy. So I wish I had that historical context in front of me. I saw some stuff yesterday on social media indicating that historically they're they're not on anybody's short list. Um, but in the here and the now, I'm 100% with you. And, and I wonder how much of it, too, is how compatible they are just for today's game. I mean, that's obviously the major thing here is how switchable they are, how long they are. Uh, I had a lot of fun over the weekend writing that piece about with two different scouts anonymously weighing in on the Celtics and Kevin Durant. And and my takeaway there was one of them described 
the Celtics as monsters and he just went through their lineup and he just, he even texted me after the story came out. He's like, Oh, I forgot about Grant Williams. Like he's a monster too. Like they're all not only long, not only sound and, you know, defensively uh, capable, but they are strong as hell. And even mentioned like Tatum and Jalen Brown. He's like, you know, these guys a couple years ago were getting pushed around. And, you know, he said Tatum is a big mother effer and, and, and Brown too. And you saw that. I mean, Slater, if you go back to uh, this series for me, had me in my head going down memory lane with Kevin Durant and a lot of the Oklahoma City playoff experiences back in the day when we knew how transcendent he was. Nobody was questioning that. But, you know, on the playoff stage, he would you know be such a focal point of the opposing defense that that he would look frustrated at times and he would have, you know, good games and bad games and, and be inconsistent and just getting, you know, teams getting under his skin. The Spurs did it back in the day. The Grizzlies did it back in the day. Um, there was a ton of that here, and, and it was not a, a just a terrible series for him. Again, good game four, but a terrible series. I covered seven Kevin Durant seasons, and I never remember him getting his shot blocked in isolation like Tatum did. I think it was it was game two or three. Did you guys remember that when? Yeah, he, oh yeah, yeah. He it was like a pullback. I think he jumper. did it back to back games, didn't he? Straight in front of him, lefty just swatted his jumper. Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't happen. Um, But, you know, Grant Williams almost reminded me of P.J. Tucker last season. Remember when P.J. Tucker was on the Bucks and the way it was just like big bully, get under him. And that's the thing with Durant. That's all, you know, the the talent's always been immense, but he's not a great screener. It's one of his few flaws because he just doesn't love to just like, you know, get super physical, even offensively. And then uh, on the other end, he doesn't love going against smaller guys that can get under him and, and really kind of push his legs, his core, his thighs. Uh, and to me, that's what Grant Williams kind of did. And I thought it was a, a good tag team. Marcus Smart, another guy. I mean, you even saw it last night, the way Smart's, you know, trying to tip his dribble away and then dive in almost in like a dangerous, uh, you know, he always borders on a little dangerous. It's what got Steph Curry hurt, honestly. Right, right, um, right. So that's just, gosh, you could tell it's, it was physically wearing and mentally wearing on Durant to face all that physicality and different types of defenders. And then I think by games two, three, particularly once they got back to Brooklyn, I think there was a sense from KD that like they weren't going to win the series. And I think once he, he got that feeling, it's like you have less motivation to really try to muscle up with these guys. Fred, yes, before you remember in, in, uh, oh, remember in the 2014 playoffs when second round series against the Clippers, when they put Chris Paul on him for the fourth quarter, and he was just so annoyed trying to post up Chris Paul in the high post with all those double teams. And that's like the ultimate small guy on Kevin Durant moment. It is. You, what's interesting about that, so though, he's is lucky like, that he avoided Jose Alvarado. Is that what you're saying, Fred? Typically, <laughs> particularly <laughs> yes, since exactly. Durant has entered like mid prime. It's like people remember that Chris Paul because like it was like a fourth quarter where he kind of like, you know, bothered Katie and got a win. But then it was like 41 the next game from Durant or Patrick Beverly a few years ago when KD was on the Warriors. Like there was one game where Patrick Beverly kind of got into him a little bit. They ended up getting double T's. I think KD got tossed. Then he has the quote, the memorable soundbite of like, I'm Kevin Durant. You know who I am. And then he goes like 50, 45, 50, essentially his next few games. Like usually he solves that. He did not solve Boston. Well, part of the thing with Boston, which I think is, look, it's a lot easier said than done to compile a team like this. But one thing that that Brad Stevens, the general manager, has done very well and identified very well building this roster 
is what does every single late game situation turn into in the playoffs? It, it just tends to be, all right, we have now identified who the weak link is against our offense and against our players, and we are going to constantly screen that guy until we can get the weak link guarding our best player, and then our best player is going to destroy that weak link. And that is what happens time and time again, late game, late in games, in the playoffs, over and over. Now, I think Boston has maybe their best trait beyond the fact they have the defensive player of the year in Marcus Smart, and they have a guy who I think should be on all defense and Robert Williams the third, and just all of these excellent experienced defenders around them is that they don't have the weak link. Like when you're out there, like you can try to hunt Derek White, but good luck. Derek right. White's really good. Right. You can try to go at Al Horford because you think he's He's not as good as he used to be, uh, but you'd be wrong. He's exactly. really good. He might be better. <laughs> he is really, really like he is a really good defender. And you just go around. And it's like, OK, fine. Try to the sell. Try to get a switch like the defense is proactively switching because like, OK, yeah, sure. Go at excellent. Jason Tatum. Go at excellent. Jalen Brown. Uh, there really isn't that much of a weak link. And and if you want to. If Daniel Tice becomes exploitable because they figure out something with Tice, who, by the way, is like a, a fine defender. It's just there are so many unbelievable ones around him that he, compared to those guys, doesn't look on the same level. Then it's like, OK, you still got the two Williamses and Robert and Grant. You still got Horford. That's your big man rotation. You're you fine. You don't have Ennis Freedom anymore. <laughs> it's and just it's that freedom. was the weak link. That was the weak link. All right. I'm uh, going to pivot here because I don't want to look backward too much. The series is over. Boston's badass. They're on their way. Um, I'm, before we get into the other series, I we, I want to get your guys thoughts on where the Nets are going. Um, like a lot of people, I'm not alone here. Listen, Kyrie, he's just too much. Like he's just too much. You know, the way he's handling his media. I'm I'm really getting, and I, I don't know, I should probably man up and write this because it's not just Kyrie. I'm so sick and tired of stars not being accountable. And that's a, that's a way, that's way too simplistic of a way of saying it. I just want some authenticity with their perspective, which is to say Kyrie needs to stop saying that he couldn't play in the regular season. There is a massive distinction and difference between couldn't and wouldn't. And I respect his choice as a human. That's a different conversation. But the fact that he continues when he reflects on the way this regular season went to describe his choice not to get the vaccine as a couldn't, as if it wasn't available, as if that was not an option, uh, is disingenuous. And the quote that that is going to live in infamy going forward after game three reads as such. That team in that other locker room is gelling at the right time. They've been gelling since Christmas. I don't want to be too cliche, but I have I, I don't have a lot of answers for how you make up time from October until now when usually teams would be gelling and things would be feeling good. You could put it on me in terms of playing better, controlling the game better, controlling our uh, possessions, being in more of a stance, not turning the ball over as much. And then again, he went on to say that he couldn't play. It's driving me nuts. I mean, and to me, this net season, it's obviously just comes down to that. There was a lot to it. You can kill James Harden for forcing his way out to Philly. Uh, I'm actually not that mad at him. Like, you know, you look around and, and you're down a star who was part of the plan because he won't get the shot. That's a program change that I think opens up doors like the one to Philadelphia. Kevin Durant tried his damn best. That that guy balled out. He's coming off, you know, terrible Achilles injury. Was amazing in the playoffs last year. I got nothing to say about Kevin. Um, but then, you know, after game four, 
Kyrie, just again, there's there's not much humility. You just got embarrassed by the team that you said goodbye to a couple of years ago, and you immediately announced that not only are you going to resign, but you plan on managing the team alongside uh, Joe Sy, the owner, and Sean Marks, the GM. Um, Did you uh, mention yeah, his, Steve Nash? I know Kevin Durant was like very much backing Steve Nash. I thought it was interesting. From a guy who, by the way, remember a quote a couple of years ago when he was like, we don't really need a head coach. I could be the head coach. That was coming Kevin into this be- season. That wasn't a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Oh, you're right. No, that was going into Nash's first year. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other part of the conversation, too. So let's the, the future of the Nets. That was my little rant. But the, you know, there, Steve there's Nash, also, by the way, on the other side of his argument, Sam. Sorry. it It's the Celtics massively changed their roster midseason. So that part of the point doesn't even hold up. Like they traded for Derek White. They traded they traded Schroeder. Like they 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 made major changes. They got Tice. No, yeah, it's just changes. you just sat there and watched the I mean, I don't want to pretend that I was I was not close enough to the Boston situation to have a, a, an, a an acute understanding of the personal dynamics. I think I have a decent one, which is to say that Tatum and Brown will continue to not disparage Kyrie and they will continue to be, you know, good with him off the court seemingly. But the whole idea from anybody you talked to about that situation was that the universe did not revolve enough around Kyrie. And when he got hurt and they flourished without him, that changed the way he felt about the situation. So he went from telling Celtics fans, I'm back, I'm coming, I'm going to be with you forever, essentially, to saying I'm out. And then I thought you were you going know, to say to double birding them as an opponent. Yeah, that too. And, you know, and so now you just saw these youngsters who, again, the perception was that they weren't, you know, you were so much better than them that, that you know, you had to change your, your franchise again because, you know, they weren't honoring that um, and, and they just bounced you out of the first round. And, and now the whole vibe continues that, you know, the Nets are just so incredibly lucky to have me and I'm, and I'm going to run the entire franchise. So. What I agree with his quote that with the one you read, which is, um, you know, Boston really needed time to gel. Remember, he, they were like through what January they were a playing team, really bad, yeah. one of the big disappointments yeah, yeah, in the yeah. league. You know, Ime Udoka is like challenging them in post game. You know, that was such a like he was afraid in- as a quick context thing. Slater, Jason Quick had a great piece on Ime recently, and I, man, you talk about an anecdote. I think it was Damon Stoudemire, Celtics assistant sharing that he's like, you may might not talk about it, but early in the season, he didn't even want to like walk around Boston because the fans thought he couldn't coach. You know, so yeah, they, they got off to a bad start. Yeah, so, but that in in retrospect, clearly, and I, you've read stuff coming out of there and just, you know, common sense is that was such an important time for them to challenge each other, you know, figure out flaws, figure out who they did and didn't want on the roster, um, you know, learn the team together. And they came out of it as this monster. Whereas I agree with Kyrie because the Nets got basically zero minutes together, like as what they thought they were going to be still haven't really, you know, with Ben Simmons playing zero minutes um, and Joe Harris, obviously like that, that is why they were not good this season. And he, Kyrie obviously leaves out the the fuller context of his role in that, which is the most massive role of anybody. Uh, but but I think he had. Tell me if so, you guys disagree. I think he had a different vision. I think he literally thought he was gonna game the system, come back so fresh because he had clocked in half the time, and he was gonna dominate. And they were gonna find a way to make this thing happen. You know, I, I don't think he went into the playoffs going, "Oh boy, we haven't had time to gel." 
Well, I want to say another thing about Kyrie. I mean, you, to me, one of the I'm watching it last night. Like in some ways, kind of wanted the series to extend because it's been pretty good theater. And so I don't want to say I'm rooting for the Nets late, but you know, you just kind of like the team that's down. They're There's fighting for their season. Yeah. You naturally are like you know watching through their lens, like fight for this, you know, to keep it alive. And it's like 13 seconds left. I think Katie misses a free throw. They're down two. They come down to the other end, and I, I, don't, I can't remember who missed the layup. It might have been Smart. Kyrie, it's Kyrie there and Al Horford. Obviously, Al Horford has the physical advantage, but Kyrie is 13 seconds left in the season, down to watching Al Horford just come in and get an offensive rebound put back to end their season, essentially. No physicality at all. And that was just like a common theme. Like To me, he, you know... Game one, he was obviously an unbelievable shot maker, which he is. You can, you know, ISO clip some of his um, makes in this series or his dribble moves and be like, you know, top 25 player ever, right? There's there's guys in the league that would argue most skilled point guard in history. This is the most skilled duo ever. He's not playing good winning basketball. Marcus Smart was a far better player in that series than Kyrie Irving was because Marcus Smart is defending, rebounding, you know, diving for loose balls, passing, uh, just, just playing playoff basketball. And to me, Kyrie Irving was making some nice individual moves at times and doing very little else to win games. So to me, it's beyond you weren't able to gel in December, January, February. Yes, I was a part of it. Like, just didn't play very good at all, fresh or not. Like, he's just, he was, there's just no physicality to the Nets game. And that goes beyond him. I mean, Kev, Kevin Other was than obviously Blake Griffin, beat that's up. about it. Seth Curry, yeah. like, you know, I don't, Patty Mills, Goran Dragic. There's no beef on that roster, no muscle. Well, Kyrie, I mean, his value, like you said, it's as a shot maker. Game two, four for 13. Game three, six for 17. And game four, six for 13. He had 20 points. He really struggled in in the first half, just being able to find shots. Right out with a turnover situation. uh, Two, two, two in each game. But the crazy greater context of that is not the individual lines. It's the fact that the Celtics' entire game plan was they were just going to load up on KD. They were going to bump him. They were going to bruise him. They were going to send defenders at him. They were going to double him. They were going to cut off the 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 the, the head of the snake, and that, they deemed that to be Kevin Durant. And Kyrie had a lot of opportunities to go one-on-one. Now, a lot of those opportunities were up against Marcus Smart. But if you're a guy who is who is uh, gonna good enough to deem himself co-ownership of the organization, you've got to be able to get good looks up in a situation like that where the guy you're playing with is just getting swarmed. Because number one, your number one value is a shot maker, and number two, it might give somebody a little bit of a second look if you do that for an entire series. So, or a second thought if you do that for an entire series. Now, all of a sudden, maybe they can't guard Kevin Durant that way. Um, I don't think the Celtics ever had any second thoughts about the ways that they that they played defensively because, man, it looked unbelievable. It worked fantastically, and, and Kyrie kind of never gave them a reason other than a good performance in game one to really think otherwise. And, uh, you know, that's 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 on him. He almost looked tired in those moments. I don't know what it was, but he just did not perform like, uh, you know, like for, you know, all NBA caliber Kyrie Irving. Agreed. And we'll see what happens. I mean, you, there's folks in the in the league wonder, you know, Steve Nash, um, from the second he took the Nets job, folks who knew Steve were a little surprised. Like, man, he just went from playing volleyball in Manhattan Beach and living a life to, you know, a job that 
to his defense, these two years with COVID and everything, it, it's been nonstop chaos from a lot of different directions. So, you know, some rumblings of, of kind of curiosities about where Steve's future lies. I think he's got a, a seat if, if he wants it. We'll see there. Um, but I don't know. I also think I, before we pivot, do you guys, is it too general to make this point about some of these guys? I thought about this last night, the, the topic of hunger and, and desire and, and the players who seem pretty desperate to win a championship and the ones who seem very content to just compete at a certain level, not, you know, with every ounce of their being, but they're competing. Uh, I feel like it's, it's kind of plain as day uh, in these playoffs that the guys that, you know, that are on each side of that fence. And you think about Chris Paul, who at this late age still obviously looks desperate. He's never won one. He's got, you know, a lot on the line in terms of his legacy. Um, I, you know, I know that you can't cut a, you know, that thread doesn't go through everybody, if that makes sense. But it, some of these guys just seem like they're rolling the ball out and some seem like, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to live if they don't win this thing. I don't think that's like a like a just a modern trend i mean that's that's the nba history right you know champions like people separate themselves in the playoffs it's you see the draymond quote okay the but other let's day? talk from a life standpoint i hear you but if you literally go back only 10 12 years the money is like you know 20 percent of what it is now still that's probably i mean you can go bit. back in history and find a whole bunch of guys that just like didn't love the game like some of the other guys love the game didn't want to work like you know some of the greats of that era the problem is you know when we think about past eras we only think about the title teams we don't think about the eight seed that year that got eliminated because like why would we talk about that team that had that player that didn't care um i know i generally know kind of what you're saying but i just like well, Draymond I'm had still the quote probably the other on day, that like, some guys who got... we think are guys are not guys on this stage and right. that is what makes the guys so fun to watch I some of those guys have been that guy. Kyrie's been that guy. He's hit one of the biggest shots in finals history. He's got a ring. He earned it. You know what I mean? And and then now it, it feels like he's going to do his thing. You know, And even, I mean, the Ben Simmons situation. I mean, the idea that they were putting out there for days, that Ben was coming back, and then Ben, you know, ben can't play. I mean, that entire team, other than Kevin, is is the you got to convince him to, to show up to work squad. Well, I'll tell you what, Sam. If you're, if you're worried about desire – you can always watch that Jose Alvarado Paul matchup. There that you go. fourth quarter of game four of Jose Alvarado forcing an eight second violation on Chris Paul and and then getting him with his hiding in the corner. I'm going to sneak behind you and poke the ball away. Chris Paul getting so angry. Jose Alvarado getting so pumped. This has nothing to do with taking joy in in Chris Paul. I, I respect the hell out of Chris Paul. I just love seeing a guy match Chris Paul's intensity. Like we yeah. never see that. Yes. Chris Paul is always the more intense one. And to He's see about to a, be in game five, to yeah. see an undrafted rookie match Chris Paul's intensity. Mike, that quarter was so fun watching Herb Jones block three, three pointers. And uh, the, you you want a fun team that yes. cares like crazy, a fun series that cares like crazy. All right. That, you want to go Pell Suns? We doing yeah, Pelicans? that series is so fun. Let's do it. This, I mean, I'm with you. First of all, Fred, shout out to you because all season long, you've been on the Herb Jones kick and telling people if they're not watching, they need to watch. Um, that dude is so much fun to watch. His defense is all world, 35th overall pick. I don't know how he slips to the second round. He was SEC Defensive Player of the Year, SEC Player of the Year. Um, and, and you mentioned Chris Paul. 
I mean, listen, Chris, we know has had his, his, you know, innumerable bouts with, you know, quote unquote, borderline dirtiness. And I mean, Chris, Chris's hit on Herb Jones in the fourth quarter was nasty. And I actually think he probably should have been ejected. He wound up, he nailed him in the head. He was not anywhere close to the ball, not anywhere close. He stays in the game. Herb, I was already loving his vibe, his game, his competitiveness. And then the moment that I wrote about last night in a playoff notebook is, you know, is Chris coming over to help Herb off the floor, seemingly having kind of the demeanor of like, I'm going to acknowledge that that was a little rough and I'm now going to show some kindness and help you off the floor. Herb's not having his hand, waits for CJ McCollum to come by and, and just gives a stiff arm basically to one of the best players of all time. So the Herb stuff, Brandon Ingram playing his ass off, uh, Alvarado, you know, kind of getting under CP's skin. There's a lot there. Uh, do we think though that these Pels is, is this the end of the fun part of the series, or or is or is Phoenix actually in trouble? I think I I, I think Phoenix is a different team without Devin Booker. Uh, and I'll tell you what, it, you, it's really fun to focus on all the intensity stuff that I brought up, and and Herb Jones's defense is outrageous. Uh, but Brandon Ingram, that dude has blossomed. He is, uh, as Draymond would say, I think Draymond would agree with me. He's a guy, and he's a guy in the playoffs. Sixteen game he, player. He he is, he has just become an absolutely excellent player, and uh, you know he his passing is unbelievable. There was a play in Sam, game I gotta four. Tell you, this is like the ninth time this season Fred has mentioned Brandon Ingram's passing. He loves Brandon Ingram's passing. I do. I do. It's just an underrated part of his game. There was a play in game four where he got two guys at once with a ball fake and then and found Valanchunas down low between like passing it through the needle. Uh, he, he has just become this unbelievably complete offensive player. Uh, he is leading that offense right now against a superb defense uh you know you lose Devin Booker Phoenix is still one of the best defensive teams in the entire league and played very well without Booker this year and and uh you know that that team is team is good and I think it's possible Willie Green might be a pretty good coach too yeah as an aside it's just just not not great too I mean that's that really kind of jolted them late yeah 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 Um, sorry I was gonna say that uh that the basketball guys like you can't Devin Booker just fist bumped a baby and it was like the cutest thing you've ever seen. How do you go from that to a hamstring injury? There's something wrong with that. And so, but to your point, Fred, the Suns, they have been winning all year without key players. So I'm not taking anything away. I mean, of course, if Devin's in there, do I think that the Suns are on their way? Yeah, probably. Um, but they're still a damn good team and one that was winning at a high rate when Devin wasn't on the floor, when Chris wasn't on the floor, when Cam Johnson wasn't on the floor, campaign, um, Bridges, of course, never misses games, but there is a lot there. But Willie Green coaching his ass off, uh, you know, his mentor, Monty Williams, on the other side, <clears throat> seeing those guys get so fired up and then always coming so close to maybe saying a bad word is is one of my favorite things in the NBA playoffs because they are all G rated all the time, both of them. Um, but big picture, you also have the fact that, you know, we talked about Boston earlier and the turnaround, right? And, and this one is not on the same level, but it's no less significant in terms of the the whiplash effect, if you will. This team was three and sixteen. This team was starting to get some of the the tougher media coverage in the entire league. And to be honest, even national folks like myself going, all right, it's time to dig in on 
the New Orleans situation. Things were messy with Dave Griffin, the head of their front office. Um, you had J.J. Reddick taking shots, you know, f- from the outside, from his experience with the Pelicans, things of that nature. The Zion Williams thing was ugly, still is not great, and we don't have clarity there. But they have a lot of pieces here, and and only Zion and his family know it, how, to what degree they care about the picture that's being painted in New Orleans of, you know, one that is a lot more promising than we thought it was a few months ago. But in terms of this franchise putting on its best face to try to turn something into the Zion Williamson era, they can't do much better than they're doing right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, we mentioned Phoenix not having Devin Booker, like they Pelicans don't have their best player. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's because it's like that situation still is like, somewhat of a disaster for them you know the number one overall pick who we have no idea on his future but because he because david griffin jolted them with the mccollum trade that even the valashunas trade from the summer for adams has turned out well the two fines that we mentioned uh you know herb jones and alvarado in the draft it has put the potential to shake up the west i mean i'm not i'm still would pick phoenix to win two out of the next three at least but what if they don't what does the west look like if the at least they're gonna somehow win more than two out of three Sorry, couldn't resist. They could win two out of two, Samuel Amon. Fair. Smart ass, Sam. Apologies. I agree. I mean, the Zion thing, we we get into that real quick. You know, our Pelicans beat writer, Will Guillory, had a good piece just yesterday about the Zion situation. And it was helpful for me because it clarified the fact that I think we sometimes are assuming, oh, Zion doesn't want to play. And, and I'm listen, I don't want to pretend I have clarity on this front. I don't. But, you know, Reggie Miller on the national telecast recently for TNT, you know, when he saw the viral video clip of Zion, I think Duncan through the legs and practice or in a gym, you know, was pretty adamant about this idea that if you can do that, you can give me 15 minutes a game. And so I am one of those people that when it comes to commentary, like a hall of famer, like Reggie, he's been there, he's done that. That carries a lot of weight, but the framing of it was certainly Zion doesn't want to play. And then I read Will's piece, and it's there's some nuance and gray area there where he outlined the fact that the Pelicans, you know, concern here is is playing a big part as well in terms of the news and Will's perspective. And he's on the ground with the team all the time. You know, he definitely doesn't anticipate Zion playing in this series. And in terms of his educated opinion, said he wouldn't rule it out if they uh, somehow got past Phoenix. So yeah, that, that thing is still around the team, but the vibe, you know, around him is certainly a hell of a lot better than it was. When we are back, uh, we're going to dive into jazz Mavericks, gentlemen. I do have a few thoughts on the jazz and, uh, and the Mavs as well. We'll do that on the other side. All right, guys, making the rounds here. Jazz Mavericks, game five. Uh, You know, Utah shows all this fight in game four. Rudy Gobert says uh, that we were the team we wanted to be. Uh, Good piece by our Tony Jones on that game that that had me believing again. I've written a decent amount about the Jazz recently, and and it's just, you know, it's like the old Godfather line. Every time, you know, you think you're out, they pull you back in in terms of, like, thinking they can be something here. And... Uh, I think I'm officially out after game five, the the lack of spirit and, and, and out on just the idea that there's some sort of miracle turnaround here. This group has got an identity crisis. Um, Donovan Mitchell is playing pretty bad basketball. And uh, if I was Ryan Smith, the second year jazz owner, 
that would be pretty concerning to me because I am going to assume they lose this series. I, I just don't see it. Uh, I know they're in Utah for game six. We'll see. But um, their entire offseason that we've talked about before, all the uncertainty, you know, barring a real surprise at the end here, my expectation is that every move they make is going to be with Donovan Mitchell at the center of their universe. Um, whether that means Rudy Gobert gets traded, if Quinn Snyder walks, whatever might happen, Donovan, in terms of their internal calculus, is the one thing they're not questioning. So it's pretty bad timing to have him look like somebody who, who doesn't necessarily, uh, isn't playing like somebody who might deserve that kind of cachet. He's 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 a big part of the problem right now. You know what adds to the concern? To me, the one time he's looked lively this series and productive was when they went small and got Gobert off the floor. I don't remember what I can't remember what game that was, but I think it was three. Um, you know, they they went Pascal, who by the way is like Eric Pascal is like one of his childhood friends. They put him at the center. They went small, and suddenly Donovan's zooming around, and they're coming back. And you know, he did have the moment, to, you know, the, the lob to go bear to to save Game Four and dr- pull Sam Amick back on uh, the boat for for a. a 48-hour period for some reason, Sam. I don't know why you know. <laughs> you jumped back on the bandwagon briefly. But, the second um, I stepped in the boat, there was a, a hole in the the hole. Yes. Um, but that's, to me, I mean, again, I'm not on the ground there. So I, Sam is it certainly knows more than me on like, the internal dynamics the, the, and being I around know, there. I'm in my it just doesn't today, it just seem I, like you got to choose Donovan Mitchell or Rudy Gobert this summer. I mean, that's the big thing. Because I just don't see them together. I don't see Donovan. He's got, uh, I believe, three years left on his deal. Uh, Let me confirm this. My thing with Donovan and folks around the league. uh, He's got, Sam, he's got, he's got two. Not not including, after this year, he's got four years, including a player option. Right. So three guaranteed, you know, it's all up to him, but three plus one. Mm -hmm. Um, People, first of all, I somehow missed this. I don't know how in the hell I missed this, Fred. This is... Your fault because it's the team you cover normally, but Worldwide West showing up to a Jazz Mavericks playoff game, you know, Nick's front office member, Worldwide West, um, I believe with Julius Randle courtside. That's right. This was big news in New York. Uh, Somebody kind of laughed at me yesterday that I didn't notice this. Um, That was something, but there's also this sense, and by the way, something that I wouldn't be shocked that the NBA is looking into because they don't like the optics of that. Um, but that was something where the takeaway is, all right, great. But Donovan Mitchell is not James Harden in terms of personality. Donovan Mitchell, uh, I, I don't get the sense that even with what's happening right now, that this off season, that his level of discontent is going to be anywhere near the type of level it would need to be for him to find his way out of Utah. It would take, you know, a, a, a an ugly kind of put your foot down, tell the world, that you're just out on the jazz type of style, the type that we've seen from James Harden and people like that before. Um, I don't get the sense he's anywhere close to that. Then is so, it Gobert or are they both back? You can you really? No, bring I think it's probably back? Gobert. I mean, I yeah. think yeah, I think it's probably Gobert. And so then it's tough to analyze because you don't know what you're going to get back. Um, I mean, you know, you put Rudy on you know, on most teams in the league, you're going to jump ten spots in defensive rating. So he's got value. He's got a tremendous value. Um, I think there are teams that, I mean, he's a more specific fit than Mitchell, but I think there are a lot of teams that would, like, I just, off the top of my, these are not, I'm not reporting these teams are specifically interested, but just like places where he totally makes sense, like 
why wouldn't Dallas just go crazy for him? Mm-hmm. And why wouldn't Atlanta potentially just go crazy for him? And like, I don't know, Charlotte always wants to just, I, Charlotte I doesn't like make Charlotte the playoffs team, him. right? Like, why would Charlotte not be like, you know what? Here's the guy. We're going to get him. We have a crazy offense. We have no defense. We have no defense because we have no rim protection. Let's get literally the best one out there. He can run pick and rolls to death. And then hire with, Quinn uh, Snyder. Is that with the LaMelo. Sure. Hire Quinn Snyder. Uh, it, 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 like, that's a team that makes sense. And there, there are various more where I'm like, okay, like, you know, maybe maybe Portland would want to get in on the mix with with Nurkic hitting free agency. Like there, there are a lot of teams that would be like, we'll take a guy who will boost our defense. Like if you have Rudy Gobert, you're you will be good at defense when he's playing. This Done. is such a testament, at least though, in the regular the, season. It's maybe such not a testament the playoffs, to the, but there are right. plenty of teams who would just love to get in. The Charlotte Hornets haven't been in. the Yeah, playoffs look, in that's what, that's seasons. why. Like the Hornets, there's some teams. Not every single team is is in pursuit of a title exactly. at the same level as other teams. The Hornets, look, I covered the Wizards for years. The Wizards want to make the playoffs. That is it. The Wizards want to make the playoffs. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they would end. They just got Porzingis, but maybe they would be a team. The that, thing with the Jazz, say, to to your point, Fred, is they you know they obviously long since reached that point of title expectations or contention. They were in that group that that you know whether it had four or five teams in it, maybe, but they were in that group. And so, what does kind of drive me crazy is that the last couple of years, the they more often than not they had something go wrong at the wrong time, and and it was always the you know what if woulda coulda shoulda type takeaway to their you know, falling short in the postseason. Mike Conley might be hurt. Boyan Bogdanovich might be hurt. You know, things like that. Donovan Mitchell has been hurt in the playoffs past. This time, this is their squad. This is their squad. This is the one that Dennis Lindsay built in the front office. Now with Danny Ainge at the, the top of that with Justin Zanuck. Um, but this is their squad. And, and those players and those people with Quinn and his staff, you know, I, I am very surprised that they haven't found a way to look around and say, okay, these breaks we didn't get in the past, uh, we got them this time. But you know what we are seeing, I think, in in pretty humbling fashion for them is that their spirit collectively is just not there. And you know whether you call it, uh, you know, on the defensive side, just five guys on a string and the kind of connective tissue that it takes to compete this time of year, it's not there. And it you know it, it comes in waves, and they win a, a game like Game Four. Um, but by and large, they've been extremely unimpressive for quite some time. Uh, unless you guys have more thoughts here. Uh, well, I, we should talk Luca a little bit. Luca's killing it. I wrote today about how <clears throat> you know he's on the verge of winning his first playoff series, um, which you know it's just been a funny dynamic the last couple of years because his numbers individually were off the charts in the postseason. But you know he uh, he was um, you know had not gotten out of the first round just yet. Um, he was never part of the quote unquote problem. But you know a guy that great, uh, I'm just looking forward to seeing him in a deeper playoff run because you know he's obviously spectacular. Um, a week ago, I thought Dallas was dead, right? You know, you have Luka who had a scary-looking calf injury, and they lost game one. And, you know, Luka still wasn't doing on-court activity. You kind of thought the Jazz might, you know, take game two and just survive that first-round series because, you know, you're going against a, a team without its best player. Uh, Luka's back now, and in, even in his absence, right, Jalen Brunson has has elevated his status, and they just look like a a firmer, very well-coached team by Jason Kidd. 
And while this is going on, and you know they get him back in the mix, and they're probably going to close out Utah in the next two games. We mentioned this Suns Pelican series and and Devin Booker's unknown status, and at least two to three weeks for him. They could very legitimately be a West finalist at this point. You almost might favor them at this point to come out of that side of the West bracket, you know, that pocket to make so uh, to make the West finals. And um, Sam, you kind of set the stage, but now that he's about maybe going to advance from his first playoff series. Like he has the chance to take that. There's no maybe. Bigger he's advancing. <laughs> what up? I said there's no maybe. He's advancing. Wow, Sam, look at this. He he, he thinks Utah's the the NBA favorites after they they win Game Four at home, and now he won't even look at them in the face. <laughs> come at come at me, Jazz fans. When your team wins in Game Seven, we'll see. No, I hear you. I mean, and I'm trying to remind myself looking at the bracket here. Um. Yeah, I mean it's it's you know if they get to the next round it'll be fun and I I still think Phoenix wins that series, uh, but Luca in general man he's that dude is just a beast. I mean that that third quarter that or that three he had in the the third I think they went up twenty eight and he gets Sam, Steph Curry shimmy shake. Yeah, does does Dallas win that series if Devin Booker's not in it? Um, no, I still don't think so. I don't like the matchup. Okay. For the Mavs. What do you guys think of that? We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but matchup wise, I feel like the small Mavs style, I mean, that's it's Clippers esque in terms of why it's causing fits for the Jazz. Um, and it's I think you been cause fits for Aiton and JaVale McGee and just Phoenix without Devin Booker. Yeah, I think, I think on the other side, though, Phoenix might be able to. I mean, I think Aiton, that could be a really good Aiton series. The jet and Fred, you've said this before. We we just gloss over how terrible the vast majority of jazz defenders are outside it's, of Rudy Gobert. It is wild. They that's just not can't, the case in Phoenix. They just can't stay in front of everybody. Anybody in Phoenix plays such good team defense. That's true. Those that's right. those guards are going to have to fight so much harder. Like Jalen Brunson will actually have to fight so much harder to get to the paint. Uh, it's it's crazy. By the way, can I can I do it? Can I do a shout out while we're talking about the Mavs? We talked about Donovan Mitchell's struggles during these playoffs. Yeah. Uh, shout out Dorian Finney-Smith, underrated defender. Sure. He is he has become like one of the best 3 and D guys in the league. Like he could not shoot when he first came into the league. Now he's automatic from the corners. He's a really good three-point shooter and he's he's really taken on Donovan Mitchell and just been unbelievably physical in this series. It's not like Donovan Mitchell, you know, for every single year we I feel like we talk about how the Jazz underperformed in the playoffs. It's not really ever Donovan Mitchell's fault. Like you look at Donovan Mitchell's postseason numbers, and they're ridiculous. He had that series against the Nuggets when they let go of that three-one lead against the Nuggets in the first round in the bubble, and you know it left a bad taste in everybody's mouth because they let go of a three-one lead in the first round. But he averaged thirty-six a game in that series. Like it wasn't Donovan Mitchell's oh, fault. Yeah. yeah, he's he's had some incredible postseasons. He's shooting under twenty percent from three in this series right now, and uh, and and just his. It's like just 37 it's just, overall. Yeah. yeah, it's just difficult for him to get off comfortable shots. And and I think Dorian Smith, Finney Smith is, has spent a lot of time on him and uh he's done he's done a great job. He's he's a really, really good defender. I'm I'm with you uh mostly. I will say that the trend on the Donovan side, it's you know, Dorian might be benefiting a tiny bit from like I, I don't know what I'm watching here with Donovan and these struggles because the second half of the year, and, and Tony Jones wrote this recently, I mean, shooting 30% in the fourth quarter for the entire second half of the regular season, you know, um, 
And then you got the defensive side. Andy Larson of the Salt Lake Tribune had a really good piece the other day looking at Donovan's defense and, and kind of pointedly criticizing the fact that Donovan has kind of, you know, kind of cast aside questions about his defense. And, and Andy had a line about how, you know, he's acting as if we can't watch the film. Um, that his defense has just been really bad. So, yeah. Um, all right, we've done enough jazz slander. But the Mavs look good. Jason Kidd is uh is is coaching his tail off and all these former Lakers folks having fun of the postseason while LeBron James tweets about how he's never gonna miss the the playoffs again. So there's always a, a six degrees of Lakers component. <laughs> all right, gentlemen, on the other side of this ad break, we are gonna talk about Fred's series, the Grizzlies and Timberwolves. We'll be right back. All right, guys, last one I think that we're going to dive into. Uh, I don't think we're going to do too much unless you have thoughts on, on Philly and Raptors, and I forget who I else. I got one Warriors thought, but that can come after Fred. Yeah, well, I'm leaving your team out. Sorry, brother. Warriors Nuggets, but let's get into Fred's series. Um, Fred is is the, uh, the newest uh, playoff beat writer of your Memphis Grizzlies, doing good stuff on that side of the ledger. Now part of the Western Conference, um, and and this series is is also fun as hell. But it's doesn't have any of the uh, the stuff that causes me angst, like we talked about earlier. The Nets vibes where where folks aren't competing and and acting as if everything's on the line. These two teams are young, hungry, passionate. You know, swagger for days. So much fun, so much talent. Um, how are you feeling about all this, Fred? It's been a really fun series. It's been a super fun series. I think the most eye-popping part of it, just from an analysis standpoint, is that especially last game, John Morant didn't quite look like John Morant. And uh, if you ask Ja and somebody did, he'll say the same thing. He said right after that game, I mean, quote, I'm not Ja right now. Dropping a third person in front of everybody to hear. Uh, and and you can tell. I mean, he he talked about not playing above the rim. And he just... Until the last couple of minutes of game four, he really wasn't attacking the rim in in that, you know, patented John Morant sort of aggressive way. And, and that is so important for their offense. The other part of it is just the unbelievable amount of fouls with Taylor Jenkins picked up a fine for calling the performance from the referee, referees arrogant, yes. which I was multiple times, really, right? Multiple times. He said, Fred, shout out to you. Arrogance. I actually meant to text you this. I appreciated, because you're a good reporter, the context you provided in your piece about who the referees were and their level of experience. I don't know why I must be tired. I'm blanking on who they were. Remind me, because you wrote about how you had a lot of long-tenured you know, NBA Finals regulars referees in this game. Yeah, it was Goble, it was Bill Kennedy, and it was yeah. uh, the third one is eluding me now. Trey Maddox there you go. was the other one. Uh, yeah, and you know, Bill Kennedy has been around forever he's been doing nba games since the 90s i think yeah john and uh, bill in particular are extremely high rated refs yeah extremely high rated refs i just thought it was so interesting to hear arrogant it it's so much more personal when you say arrogant i right. was actually surprised the fine was only 15 uh my guess is the fine was only 15 was because the league office went through it and realized oh these were some bad calls there was a there was a period in game 4 where uh, Desmond Bain got called for an offensive foul, which would have been his fourth foul in the th- in, and it was the third quarter. The next play, 
Uh, D'Angelo Russell got a ticky-tack offensive foul, which was one of those that kind of felt like a makeup call for the previous call. And then the next play, Desmond Bain got another offensive foul. The first one had been reversed on a challenge. The next play, Desmond Bain got another offensive foul, essentially in the exact same way and did not look like an offensive foul. So, and and that one might've been a makeup for the, for the D'Angelo Russell one. So it was like, it was, there were just so many guys going to the line. There were so many guys in foul trouble. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of colored the series in some ways. I don't think it's as anti-Memphis as uh, Taylor Jenkins was bringing it up to be after that game four performance. Uh, But it's always interesting to see how referees come back after those sorts of comments from players and coaches and all that, you know? Well, and and now you got me thinking a little bit on the officiating side before we go to Warriors Nuggets. Remind me, unless I missed it, guys, did, did the league not hit Monty Williams with a fine? Yeah, he got fined. He did get um, it. Okay. Gobert. No, Gobert got fined for, for cussing. On well, the TV. Monty one I was watching because um I, I appreciated Monty's I don't know if it was an attempt to not get fined, but he he framed his criticism in a way where he said, you know, that he didn't think it was I'm paraphrasing th- fair that, you know, when I think their game was forty two to fifteen in free throws and um that you know that that he uh would feel like, you know, coaches feel like they are gonna get their heads cut off if they highlight that kind of discrepancy. So I, I felt like, you know, he, he did his best to, to, you know, try to, uh, to wiggle around the fine, obviously didn't, um, as a general quick commentary thing, I, I don't know. I kind of wish that the, the league would chill on the idea that the, that coaches and players are not allowed to talk about the refs. I mean, the league is featuring the officials more than ever. They have, you know, all, all access referee, segments on NBA TV with kind of human interest stories of individual referees. And I like it. I think it's better for the fans to know some of the people making these calls, but then on the back end, it's just like, no, 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 don't ever talk about the impact that their calls have. Uh, and, and they just run around slapping everybody on the wrist. I generally agree with you. I just think they're afraid of like, you know, and I see it every time we all do with like, particularly the fan bases we're most around. Like if, if the team loses a playoff game, it's like conspiracy theories run wild, right? You know, oh, yeah. like this was because the league wanted this result. So, and then I just think when the major figures kind of throw logs on the fire by in, intimating that it was like a really poorly ref game, it just kind of just spins that cycle too much and gets it away from the court product more than like conspiracy theories. But I know what you're saying, Zane. I just hate it. My 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 thing that I really don't like is when people use foul shot discrepancy as proof of an unfairly refereed game. As if the way, if basketball is officiated perfectly, then everybody gets the same amount of free throws. That how much you foul is only how much it's called, not how much you are actually committing fouls. It reminds me of when uh our esteemed president said uh, that if we test less for COVID, then we'll just have less COVID. Uh, it's it's like that. It's don't be putting that on shots. Biden. You got to at least say which president you're talking about. <laughs> uh, I think people can guess, but you know, the, Fred's trying to take us down a controversial path. the The point of um, the point of free throws is that you're fouling too much. The Grizzlies, by the way, foul a lot. Jaron Jackson Jr. fouls a lot. Uh, A lot of those fouls, not all of them, it was not a well-officiated game. 
I just in general am not for using free throw discrepancy. As I agree, but isn't proof there a threshold the when you're not fairly when it's nearly triple? You know what I mean? Like I feel like there's a threshold because as a general rule, yes, like that's not proof of a uh, of, of a bad officiate a bad badly can't even talk officiate a game. This one though, Monty's more nuanced point was that the Suns were in attack mode. The Suns were in the paint. The Suns were doing similar types of things to what Memphis was doing and, and the whistle didn't come their way. And, and we don't need to litigate how the game was called. I just, I find the politics around referee criticism uh, a little troubling. All right, Slater, Fred had to jump. Appreciate him as always real quick on the back end here. Warriors Nuggets game five coming up on Wednesday night. Yep. Uh, we didn't think we would be here. The Nuggets show some life. Even with Draymond Green sticking his finger in Nikola Jokic's eye, things of that nature, Denver uh, lives to fight another day. What do you think there? Yeah, um, you know, it was, you could tell Denver really didn't want to get swept. Even Malone was pretty transparent about it post game. I don't suddenly think this is going to turn into Raptor Sixers and it's going back to Denver and there's real drama about, you know, if the Warriors are advancing. We'll see. They could steal a game. But, you know, a lot of the advantages still obviously tilt the Warriors' direction. Um, but, I you know, I, I wrote about Clay Thompson today. I just kind of, you know, there's been you know, Jalen Brunson, Jordan Poole, Tyrese Maxey. This has been a playoffs of emerging stars. And I do think under the radar a little bit is Clay Thompson looks kind of like himself uh his last seven games he's averaging 30 points 29.7 he's shooting 50 percent from three 53 percent overall uh he leads the nba right now in the playoffs with 21 made threes four dribbles for 32 points the other day like this is him again offensively it's not him defensively quite uh the same but yeah, this bones is the highland ate him up on that one position yeah bones so this is uh that's defensively, he is not as laterally quick and never will be again. He's 32 coming off the injuries, but they're playing him more at the three in this small lineup, um, which he is now a three to me more than a two. He's always been like a big two. Now he's just kind of got to be a three, which is okay. Well, isn't that convenient because they stumbled their way into another two? Yeah. Th- yes, they did. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, it's good you mentioned that because early in his, in Clay Thompson's return, he was dribbling a ton, and I put a bunch of stats in the. I did like yeah, kind of a deep that. dive into, yep. into the Clay story. He was trying to take guys off the dribble, pick and roll, operating, and you look at all the numbers. Like he was taking a bunch more shots than he ever has, like after three or four or five dribbles, which isn't him. Um, but then Jordan Poole has arisen basically, and that has allowed him to settle back into the proper role for him, which is like pure catch and shoot guy. And, uh, you know, get it on his hands and it's gone. And that's how he has games like game four, where it's four dribbles, 32 points. Uh, And he's just he I mean, he just looks like himself. He's bouncing around out there. He's curling off screens. He's he's catching the ball with 21 on the clock in transition and firing up a 28 footer. And the defense is freaking out and, and he's hitting it. And I just as we assuming the Warriors move past the the Nuggets, which I think we both believe they will. I mean, I just think a lot of the uh, check marks that we were, the unknowns that we thought about this Warriors team going into the playoffs, which would be, how does Steph Curry look? The answer is pretty healthy. He looks pretty healthy. Would Draymond Green hold up physically? He's looked good, you know, in a bunch of center minutes against Jokic. What about Jordan Poole on this playoff stage? How, How will he perform? Very well. And even Klay Thompson, it's like, can he get somewhere near his form? 
I mean, he's the hottest shooting three point uh, guy in the league right now. Like this is I mean, a lot of stuff is really going the Warriors' way. Yeah. What are they going to do with the lineup, Slater? Um, that that's the only thing to me that you know might have a little bit of trip up potential. Yeah. Um, Steph Curry will be back starting. I I'm pretty sure he'll be back starting game five against the Nuggets, which means somebody has to come out. Um, I we'll see the the choice seems to be between Jordan Poole goes back to a six man role or, or Kevon Looney goes to the bench and they play their just like supercharged three guard lineup right at the start. I could see the staff keeping Looney for this game because Nikola Jokic just still exists in this world. Uh, but once they advance, I think it's pretty obvious they need to to be, make Looney the backup center and just start you know the the small lineup which is Poole, Curry, Clay, Wiggins, Draymond. Game you one have any, of the next round. Any sense? Uh, I don't know Jordan really at all. I haven't been around him a lot. Um, what is his? I mean, you, when you succeed at this rate and you show you know yourself at times to be just an all star caliber player, where is his head at when it comes to the ego aspect of of this decision? We're, we may have to see that. I mean, that definitely has been a tiptoe behind the scenes in, in many ways. It's why I think Steph Curry has remained on the bench through four games. Steph Curry played 37 minutes last game. This wasn't They weren't no longer managing some tiny minutes restriction like in game one. He could have started, and he didn't. And I don't know if you've seen his quotes. He's talked about basically, I hope I'm demonstrating that it doesn't right. matter if you come yeah. off the bench or not. He's not talking to Nemanja Bielitsa. He's not right. talking to Kevon Looney, who has been benched and re-benched like 19 times in his career. He's talking to Jordan Poole. Um, we will see. And the truth is, I mean, I know they're kind of Shout out to Steph too. on that, man. I love that vibe. Like yeah. That reminds me a little bit of, you know, Monty Williams always wears his hat. Uh, that is his saying. You've probably seen it. It says WS for well said, and then it has a greater than symbol, and it's WS is better than WD, well done. I'm sorry, other way around. Well done, yeah, well better done than, is better than well, better said, than well yeah. said. To me, this is Steph. He doesn't need to put you know that many words on it. He doesn't need to speak on it that much, but his actions are showing for the future and as they try to get this thing to its maximum level. That you know that he's willing to sacrifice as the guy who built this entire thing, you know, from the ground up. Yeah, so I believe they're messaging well enough and demonstrating from Curry well enough behind the scenes that if Jordan Poole is told to come off the bench in Game Five, he should be able to. He's still going to get thirty something minutes, right? Yeah. I mean, they're going to play this lineup like crazy. Looney will, can start and get twelve minutes essentially, but tactically, I think moving forward beyond this series. They need to lean in. And and it's not that you should start Jordan Poole because you don't want to, you know, mismanage, you know, the personality aspect. I think they should start Jordan Poole because, like, this is who they are. This is who, right. who they should be from an identity standpoint, which is you put three bombers on the floor together. Draymond tries to hold down the interior, and you just try to boat race teams with that lineup. Uh, so that that's just what I think they should do. Do you have, not to put you on the spot, um, the latest numbers on – that lineup, whether we call it Death and Maxes or yeah, uh, yeah, it wasn't put on um, it. in the How two Denver games. It now? wasn't as potent. It was about even or so. So they're probably somewhere still around like plus twenty nine through four games, which is still huge numbers, but it's not as outrageous. The one thing I would say, the three guard lineup, if you just you know filter it, so just when those three have been on the floor together this season. Um, in regular season and playoffs, they are plus one twelve in one hundred seventy three minutes. Those three together just have just terrorized teams. Right, so, right. 
you know, you can have different iterations, uh, you know, next to them. And that could be um, typically you want Draymond holding down the interior. But, you know, if Otto Porter's out there, Kaminga, they threw out there the other day in game four, they which, did. which was interesting. Um, but when those three are on the floor together, as Mike uh, Malone has said many times in the series, I think he called it the three headed monster. It's Michael, Michael Malone. Michael Malone. to get you in trouble there. My bad. My bad. Um, that's and like that's their particularly with Poole and Curry. That's their two best offensive players. And the way Clay's shooting, that's their three best offensive players. All right, brother. Great stuff. We made the rounds. Sorry to Sixers and Raptors fans uh, and Heat and Hawks. We didn't get into those two series all that much, but lots of good action and uh, goodbye to those Brooklyn Nets. And we'll see what the offseason holds for them. And we will talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody.